From Wall Street to Main Street, there are stories to be told. Where knowledge learned on the street is as powerful as knowledge learned on the streets. This is the Financial Recon Podcast, where we introduce you to the people, places, and things that have helped shape our environment and will help shape yours. Welcome to the conversation. Where are we sleeping? What's the menu? Did you buy this? It's enough to make anyone loopy around the holidays. Then, throw in finances, and you have a recipe fit for Bravo. But let's be honest. We all have the family member who has the hot stock tip, or in this day and age, crypto, who may have made a mint on an NFT of a turkey, and now is a financial savant. So how is one to navigate this potential psychological minefield? That's where we turn to Derek Hagan, financial therapist from Money Health Solutions. Derek provides some great insights as to why the season is so stressful and how to best handle these situations. Derek, the financial therapist, you're the most a sought-after man at this time of year as we're encroaching upon the holidays, and I'm sure folks are getting ready to... Uh, walk into the onslaught of uh, family dynamics right now with the uh, you know conversations that are about to be had around money and so forth. So I, I, I'm glad you can make some time for joining us today. So thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Happy to spread the word. This is kind of my life's purpose to help spread this kind of information. Well, well, you do a great job, and um, you know, I, as some of the folks have seen through the blog or separate emails, uh, I've used some of your illustrations in the past. You do a great job of communicating things. So, I, I guess, like, you know, we're coming up on the holidays here in a, a couple of weeks. Why do we get so nervous, specifically around the holidays? You know, seeing family and talking about money. That's the million dollar question. And I think with with holidays in general or, or any time really you getting together for what I might call obligated family time where you <laughs> have committed to this and that's it. There's no out. Right? I'm, I'm here for a week. I'm here for a weekend. I'm here for a, a four hour dinner. Uh, so you're in mixed in with a whole bunch of people that you got a lot of history with. And that could go very well, or it could go very bad or anything in between. But that's there's a lot of history with our family members, whether that's that's good or bad. But mm-hmm. we can't really it's not as easy to escape as if, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend at a restaurant. I could just leave pretty easily if that got uncomfortable, but not really so in the holidays. Inevitably, when we have those interactions, we start talking about. Like somebody's going to bring up money, right? Like there's going to be that 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 person who rolls up in the the fancy car. They're talking about a promotion and things like that. Why do you think like that starts to trigger folks? Yeah, and I can back up. So that that could be the family members come up with the fancy car, but it could be that you are the one that's got the fancier right, right, car, right? So right. I could go yeah. either way. But but money in general is. It touches every area of our lives. Uh-huh. You can't escape it. So there are other taboo topics. Politics, for example, sexuality, <laughs> uh, religion. 
you you can you're not allowed to talk about those things either but you don't have to unless you really actually want to money touches every single area of your life it touches what you do what you drive what you wear where you live where your kids go to school every single thing where you went on vacation mm-hmm. has a monetary component there's few life decisions that don't have a monetary component and there's you know few financial decisions that don't impact your life so this literally is all over our lives and if that's not complicated enough we didn't really inherit these our parents and our grandparents great grandparents they didn't give us the genes that made us equipped to handle money mm-hmm. if you go back enough generations everything that we call sound financial behavior <laughs> those people that did that didn't survive to become our ancestors right could you saving things until tomorrow and not using the whole thing and it just doesn't it doesn't work, right? There's no equivalent to money in nature. It's a totally human-made phenomenon. So you've got this thing that we're not equipped to handle with or to handle and it touches every area of our lives. And because of that, as soon as we open our mouth and start talking about money, we open ourselves up for judgment. That's good, that's bad, it's it's either way. So most of the time when you think about judgment, I imagine you're thinking about being negatively judged. I'm the only, I'm the misfit of the family, or I'm the black sheep, or I'm the, everybody is a doctor and a lawyer in my family, and I didn't do that. I'm an artist or something. I, not to pick on artists, I'm just using right. an example. <laughs> but, because it could go the other way, too. I'm the lawyer in, in a family full of artists, and they look to me like, ooh, well, this guy needed to go, he's all about the money. He didn't want to be creative, right? So anything, even if you have more or less of the same amount, you're getting judged. And you're probably judging people, too. So this is, it's just a big web of judgments, and we don't like feeling judged. And so we usually just, as best we can, climb up and not talk about it, which is why when somebody does open their mouth to talk about it, you can hear the pin drop because it's like, why'd you bring that up? Right. Right. It's just super uncomfortable (laughs) because I don't want to, I don't want to engage with you if you said anything. I made this much in crypto this year. I want to talk about that. Or I made, I'm spending this much on gifts, or we're going this place for Thanksgiving or for Christmas. I don't have that, so I don't have anything to talk to you about. So it gets uncomfortable because by default, we're comparing our lives with the lives that the other people are presenting, either by opening their mouth and talking about it, or it even this goes as deep as social media, too. We're, we're oh, showing yeah. ourselves on social media only... It's a curated version of our lives, though. So why do you think we benchmark ourselves against folks like that? I think that goes back deep to tribal times. Mm -hmm. So um, I know Mike knows this very well, but our mentor, Ted Klontz, has a set of six basic needs that we all have. And there's many Mm -hmm. sub-needs underneath those, but six basic needs that every single behavior that we do is a desperate attempt to meet one or more of these, and that's Belonging, like the sense that we're a part of a group. Mm -hmm. Autonomy, which is the sense that we want to make our own decisions, which is why if I was going to go mow the yard and my wife said, hey, go mow the yard, I all of a sudden don't want to because it wasn't my idea anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Safety. (laughs) Right. Or or I'm going to go do it, but I'm going to do it because I want to, not because you told me to do it. That's the sense of autonomy was being threatened. And so I felt the need to, to push back. Safety and security, of course, that could be survival, but it could be, I don't feel safe in that group of 
friends because they're going to attack me or I don't feel safe if my portfolio level drops down below a certain level. Um, Self-expression is I want to be heard. Uh, I, I need to, I can't feel like I'm silenced and then purpose or significance that needs to be something bigger. And then finally connection. So two of those six basic needs are around other people, belonging and connection. So but belonging is I need to feel like I'm a part of a group and connection is I need to have social relationships within that group. And if any, if we ever feel like we're not getting any of those needs met, uh, we can become emotionally flooded, which I can talk about later. But the question was, why do we want to benchmark ourselves? It's because we need to kind of know where we, where are we in that tribe? Where are we in that group? So belonging says I belong to a tribe, but it says nothing about where Mm -hmm. in that tribe. So we're, we're hypersensitive to, okay, where do I, where do I fit? Where do I belong? And this is true if there's a big range of outcomes, but if, if we cut that range in half, there was going to even be more hypersensitive to smaller differences. You got a little bit more than me or a little bit less than me. So we can't get away from measuring ourselves because that's what, that's what we've, that's what we've, you know, inherited, but we can with practice change the yardstick we use to measure. Money is the default because money is easily measured and you can see it and it touches every area of our lives. So that's why we tend to default towards using money as the comparison. Because mm-hmm. I can't, you can't look around and see somebody out on the street and say, wow, that person's really happy and has a strong sense of purpose. I can't see that by looking at that person. But I can see what they're driving and what they're wearing and what house they're walking into. So money becomes the kind of de facto yardstick that we use. I would feel like that is what leads into keeping up with the Joneses and to achieve that benchmark, right? Absolutely. And I I love that you brought that up because keeping up with the Joneses used to be the Joneses, the next door neighbors, the people in your community. But remember, you know exactly how it feels, what financial stress feels like, because you're experiencing it. Anything, any stress that you're feeling has to be communicated to me. And even if you're communicating that perfectly to me, I'm still one step removed from what you're actually feeling. But then layering on top of that, the fact that we don't talk about money and you're certainly not going to talk about your financial stress. And in fact, you might even do the opposite, you know, Mm -hmm. status signal. So here I am. I know what my financial stress feels like. I look around to my neighbors, the Joneses. They look like they have it together because they're not presenting as being stressed out. So I say, well, I must be doing it wrong. So I'm going to do what they're doing. And then I'm going to copy that. And that's that's living my life. My behaviors is matching are matching their values. And so that's going to lead to a life of, or has a strong potential, in my opinion, to lead to a life of regret, sometimes, you know, midlife crisis, when you finally realize, wait a second, I haven't been living a life according to my values. I've been living the life that I thought I was supposed to live. And then that's the real Joneses. And then in the 80s, you got Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, where we got to <laughs> see right into our living room here's here's how these rich people live and then it was mtv cribs and now it's social media where it's our friends now but remember they're only showing us curated filtered cropped versions of their lives but th- even though we know that that's what we're seeing when we scroll through our phone and now mm-hmm. that that hits us because we've got you know some people call fomo or fear of missing out or fear of not having that or I feel like I'm behind the eight ball because I 
don't see anybody else complaining about what I'm feeling. And I feel stress. And that stress is not all the same. You know, financial stress is different for everybody, but it's there. But we don't show that. We don't present that. Mm-hmm. So that's the funny thing. The irony is I'm trying to copy my neighbor, the Joneses, because they look like they have it together. But they're trying to copy me because to them, I look like I have it together. And so we've got this mess of people doing what they think they're supposed to be doing. So you lead me down. <clears throat> I've kind of got a two-parter here for you because this is uh, you're hitting on a topic right now that I'm sure we're all going to be thinking as we approach the holidays. So first off, you know, you mentioned earlier about generational, right? That's our, our money story, our family money story, which is a, a very powerful exercise. I, I learned so much going through it uh, personally with uh, you in uh, class over at Creighton under Brad. Or was it Brad or Ted? I couldn't remember we, who right. we did it under, but it, it's such a great exercise. I encourage anybody to go back and talk to family members and learn your money history. Generationally, you can see it. Like I'm sure you're going to hear these debates at the table. You may have older folks, depression era folks, or something. Yeah, I pay off my mortgage. Does that make sense in today's? You know, I, I see that with clients all the time. Well, so there's that old quote: "Personal finance is more personal than it is finance." Right. And that simple quote shifted things for me personally because I come from a world of math and high finance. And the the literal, what I call exterior finance, which is the spreadsheets and calculators version of, and that's what most people think of. So when it's talking about paying off the mortgage, the spreadsheets and calculators answer is, well, what's the mortgage rate? And if I pay it off, will I make that in the markets or not? And then I can compare these two interest rates. And, you know, but of course, one of them is a guaranteed return and one of them is a volatile return. So we have to, you know, but that says nothing about what I call interior finance, which is. I just don't want to have a mortgage payment. And then I'll take all that 2000 bucks a month or whatever my mortgage is, and I can invest it later. Uh, mm-hmm. And who knows where those came from. So if you're, depending on how old you are, your grandparents or great-grandparents are probably Depression era, meaning they were the children. They were growing up in the Depression era. And then there was some world wars, and then there was a Holocaust, and there could be all these different social flashpoints, you know, a financial right. flashpoint or these, these like big, big social events. You know, right now we're living through one that people will be talking about in, in several years, the coronavirus pandemic. But these, it was literally the case where, so maybe your great grandparents literally couldn't trust banks because there was no such thing as FDIC. Well, my great grandparents lost their home in the depression. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I just learned that in the last two years. And that's an interesting thing to learn, right? I mean, that's yeah. that. Then some things start to make more sense now that you know that. I imagine. I, I guess I don't know for sure, but things start to make sense when you learn some of those big things, right? And you know, so it could be the case where, yeah, I I had all this money in the bank, and then I didn't. Impossible for people to to understand how that could even work today. But even then, after we created FDIC. Insurance, you're insured, it used to be $100,000. I think it's two fifty now. Right. But up to $100,000, if the bank goes bankrupt or goes away, you get up to $100,000 back. Even though that was the case, that's not going to wipe out the fact that I lost all my money in the mm-hmm. bank. So I don't care about this FDIC. 
I'm not going to trust banks. And so that's what your parents grew up with. Or that's what your grandparents grew up with. This lesson that never trust the banks. And right. So they might have shifted a little bit and said, okay, I guess I can trust banks now, but I'm, I'm not going to invest. I mean, geez, that thing lost 90% over three years. I'm not going to put any money in that thing. So <laughs> then maybe your parents learned, okay, I can invest, but I'm only going to put a little bit in Schwab and a little bit in Vanguard and a little bit in Fidelity because that's what, to some people, diversification means is splitting it up between brokerage houses. Um, so then it, so there's a kernel of that story that leaks its way down through the, the generation. So when it comes to paying off a mortgage, there's more factors at play than just simply interest rate differentials because even, we can even keep this in the spreadsheets and calculator side. There's this idea called risk tolerance, and, and that can be split up into do I need to take risk, uh, do I have the ability to take risk, and do I want to take the risk? Like, right. Can I can I handle it? And that can I handle it piece says if I pay off a three and a half percent mortgage, that's a guaranteed three and a half percent return. If I go into the markets, I might make ten if I'm all equities or twelve if I'm all equities. I might make thirty if we've got a crazy crazy markets. I might lose money over time. That might average to five or six. But I'd rather just have a guaranteed three and a half. So even mm -hmm. if even if you separate the interior stuff, there might still be a real, honest to goodness reason for paying off a mortgage, just because of my tolerance for for risk. But but that's I guess what I'm getting at is right. Like there's that clash that your emotions are going to clash with the analytics at some point and each generation is going to have that, right? Like they're going to have that. My kids are going to at some point, hopefully be like, you know, why did you pay off a 3% or 2% mortgage like that? I mean, you're starting to see it, right? Like you're, you're having these, a generation that's realizing interest rates uh, at 1%. It seems like crazy, like a crazy bank account. Wow. You made, whereas I heard from par my parents and so forth, 10% more, 15% mortgages, right? Like, so it just seems like that, you know, like you're saying, the analytics can tell us one story, but the emotions have to tell us the other half of it and whether it's a, and I wasn't saying that necessarily that it has to be a good fit uh, or, or to make a judgment one way or the other. But like you said, per finance is personal. Yeah. And, and there's a, a line that I like to use that says, a pretty good strategy that you'll implement is better than the perfect strategy that you're not going to do. Mm -hmm. And if I'm comfortable with paying off my mortgage, I, I know people, I know of people at least, who know exactly they're they're in the high fine, they're on Wall Street, and they said, "Yep, I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm still paying off the mortgage because I just don't want that burden." And there's another cultural flashpoint event happened in mid-2000s, culminating in 2008, where a lot of people lost their house, their houses. or mm -hmm. they, At least you, it's possible that you know somebody, but almost certainly know somebody who knows somebody who had some kind of housing problem. So that message that we receive is, I need to own this thing. I don't want to live in this house that the bank owns. I need to own this thing now. And there's a, you know, back to the basic needs, that's going to hit safety and security pretty strongly because if I own it, I've got control of it, and now you right. can't take it away from me. I can sell right. it if I want to, but that's my choice and that you know autonomy. I get to choose if I want to leave or sell it or, 
or get out of town. But if I live in the bank's, you know, house that I'm paying monthly payments to, they can take it from me if they if they want to. Or maybe something crazy happens in the markets, or maybe I'm in an adjustable mortgage and, and the rate shoots through the roof, or who knows what. But I want, you know, depending on the mix of needs that are being met or not being met, safety and security is a big one. And if paying off a mortgage gets me to feel safe, that's going to, it doesn't even matter what the right. spreadsheet says, I'm going to feel safe. So, yeah, and that, I guess like that's the biggest thing for people to take away is, you know, you have to be, I always tell folks, you got to be able to sleep at night. Like, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I could sit there and run every data point till you're blue in the face. But, I mean, if you can't sleep at night, it all falls apart. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But you also hit on another keyword that, I, you know, as you're speaking, these things are popping in my head. It's risk tolerance. Inevitably, there's going to be that person when, if, you know, there's any money talk. Oh, I made all this money in the market this year and this and that. How do you deal with that type of situation? Congratulate them. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. You, you can resist the urge to feel the fear of missing out or it, you'll feel it initially. But if you can slow down and, and grow the space between stimulus and response, you can say, that's awesome. Great. Good for you. How did you do it? You might even ask more questions about it. Mm-hmm. If you want to, or move on, I mean, you get the, that's the beauty of it. You get the choice. So one kind of hypothesis or one way of doing this, one philosophy is to just put on your listener's hat and say, great, tell me, tell me how you did that. How did you know that was the right move? And just get them talking and see what happens. Then, you know, in the back of your mind, you can realize that a lot of these things, a lot of these big investment returns come because somebody took a lot of risk. And the fact that the risk didn't happen, it didn't show up, doesn't mean that it wasn't a risky strategy. So they they rolled the dice and it came up snake eyes and good for you, but it very easily could have came up boxcars. And that's, then they'd be telling you a different story. So they took a risk. You didn't want to take that risk. That's okay. But if, so that's kind of the thing is if you can go big enough picture and say, well, we just have different risk tolerances. I don't have the stomach to be able to handle that kind of risk. Because the fact that it's paid off for you, that's great. I'm happy for you. If you are, you know, don't lie to them. But, <laughs> but no, I wish you lost it all. <laughs> but knowing that if they keep playing that game, it's, it sets off the same kind of triggers in your brain as gambling does. This kind of right now, the hot ticket is cryptocurrencies. But if you go back to the 2000s, it was tech stocks. And right. in the middle 2000s, right. it was house flipping. I mean, there's, there's these things kind of cycle. And if you play that game long enough, you're more likely to, or you're less likely to keep winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe they'll lock in their wins or not. I don't know. But the big thing to take away there is to recognize by putting on your listeners hat, you can always, and this is the same thing with political discussions, with any kind of discussion. Why do we have a difference of opinion? We're only going to find out if we listen to each other. If I can understand what your viewpoint is, and you can understand what my viewpoint is, we will get it down, and finally we'll say, "Oh, I guess what our at our core, 
you have more trust in humanity than I do, or something like that. Like, you think people will do the right thing if left to their own devices, and I don't. You know, that's kind of a political deal. But if you boil it down, the investment stuff, it's, well, you just had the stomach to take the risks, and I didn't. Or you just had some pretty good timing, and that's good for you. I didn't have the good of timing. But if you can figure out where the difference is, that's, that's what listening is. Listening to understand, instead of inserting your opinion often unsolicited, and then they're going to insert their opinion, and then you're going to insert your opinion, and then we've had too much wine, and now all of a sudden we're screaming at each other. That's kind of the default. Then you get the Nerf guns out, and (laughs) you battle it. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, But that, and and that's a great point. So, like, how does somebody take that and take that listening hat and make sure that on the next day they're not calling someone like me up or – themselves and saying, yeah, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to blow up my investment strategy because I'm going to start chasing returns. So with most things, awareness is, is the key. There's this 80, 20 rule. You can get 80% of the benefit with 20% of the effort in a lot of areas, right? So 80% of the benefit around not blowing up your portfolio or not chasing returns is the awareness that that may happen to you. So if I know that that's more likely to happen to me, then I can recognize it when it does. And I can say, oh, wait a second. That's right. I don't, I don't need to do that. And I think people like you, people like me, and what I'm making it my mission to do is to try to help as many people as possible understand what their money's for. Right. I, I call this financial purpose. And if we can figure out what's the money for, for you not for society, not what you think you're supposed to do. If you know what your money needs to do, that can be your beacon or your North Star or your, your guiding principle that says, if ever I get distracted because my brother-in-law kept talking about how he made $40,000 in cryptos just last week, well, that's okay because I know what my money needs to do and I can't afford to take that kind of risk or... This person bought a really fancy car and I'm still driving the 10-year-old Toyota, but that's okay because I don't value cars other than reliable transportation. But if I can keep reminding myself what the money's for, and that's the game, it's a constant reminder, it helps me avoid the distraction. Or when I get distracted, it's a reminder to point back towards where I need my money to go or what I need my money to do for me. Having that North Star is so important. And I think in with something we examined in prior episodes is that experiences are taking on even more a point in people's lives than stuff. (laughs) And, you know, people are going to always have stuff. It's going to be something you can physically see. How do you keep your financial focus on the experiences if that's what you choose to do? Yeah. So first of all, there's nothing wrong with buying stuff. If, it's intentional if you know why you're buying this thing. So we do, like you said, we do need th- we do need some stuff. We need clothes. Right, we, right. If in, in America, in most cities, we do need a car. Some cities can get away without. So we do need some things. Mm-hmm. But those things help you survive. Once you're surviving, if you want your money to bring happiness, which is what I believe people should shift their their purpose towards their end currency should be happiness, not money because money is worthless in and of itself. It's only useful as a means to use it and you can use it to buy stuff 
or you can use it to buy experiences, or you can use it to buy time, or you can use it to help others. Those are the kind of main four ways you can use it. Uh, experiences, so I like to kind of think of it this way. There's kind of three components to a purchase. There's your anticipation mm-hmm. of your purchase. There's the experience, and then there's your memory of it. Now, it's on the anticipation side. If you're going to buy a thing, let's pick on a TV. If you're going to buy a TV, or I'm going to go on a quick weekend trip, maybe those are about the same cost. I might experience similar anticipation. I'm really looking forward to that TV because it's going to make my theater or my living room a little bit better. Or I'm really looking forward to getting away for the weekend up to, you know, Outer Banks or wherever I'm going. Then you've got the experience. Now, the experience of the trip is you're with friends, you're with family members, you're, you're experiencing, you're going out to eat, you're maybe going on a hike or you're going on a walk. The experience of buying the TV is you gave them the money and they gave you the TV. That's literally the, the experience. And then the memory, of course, the memory lives on of the trip. You're going to remember the fun times you had with your kids, the fun times you had with your spouse. You're going to remember all the things that you did, the places you ate. And with there's this idea called euphoric recall, which is the idea that you're, even if it was bad or there was bad elements of it, you're going to remember it in a good light. This is why five years later, you'll say, oh, man, do you remember how angry we got at each other? And you're saying this in a laughing tone because, oh, we just couldn't pick a place to eat. And I, oh, you were at my throat and I was at your throat. But at the time, you hated that. Like, that was very <laughs> tense. But because of this idea called euphoric recall, we remember it in a positive light. Well, with the TV, there's no memory. You don't right. remember the experience and you don't remember the anticipation. In fact, you see it every single day wear out. And you see it get old and you see it get outdated and you see it get... You know, you see other people get newer versions and you get used to it. The, the the jargon term for this is hedonic adaptation. We just get used to the new things that we get. So it's probably possible that for the month or two, you really loved that TV and then it just became my TV. Right, right. You, you forget what it was like to have your previous TV. <laughs> so you don't get any memory of the TV. The experience wasn't really there. So the only thing that's kind of on par with the experiences, the anticipation, but it's that memory piece, the euphoric recall piece that really makes experiences worthwhile. So when you're towards the end of your life and you're looking back on your life, those are the things you're going to remember. Those great mm-hmm. times you had, I watched my kids go on the ocean for the first time, or we went up to hike that mountain or we, whatever, went to the beach. Those are the things that you're going to remember. You're not going to remember the car that I had 10 years ago. And how is how is it somewhat you know like because we all we were in that moment you know you're like yeah like I can bench I'm benchmarking myself I'm looking at it saying yeah look at that stuff you know man the car would be cool you know all this how do we keep those experiences you know like you said like yeah I've watched my kids go in the ocean for the first time thing how how is it we can make sure we keep those at our forefront. Reminders. So one thing that I do with with clients, and I'm trying to do it with a broader reach as well, mm-hmm. is to help people define what I'm calling a financial purpose statement, which is a quick mantra like money's purpose in my life is to, and then whatever it is, is to raise independent children or to experience as much of the world as I can or to create okay. and connect or whatever it is. And I actually 
encourage people to write it down on a card and keep it with them. So before, if I'm feeling like I really need this car, I can pull out my purpose statement and ask, is this going to help me, you know, raise independent children? Or is this going to help me experience good experiences with my, my children or with my spouse? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to find loopholes, that's fine. If you want to say, well, technically this car is going to help me, you know, whatever. That's fine because this is not a deprivation tool. It's an intentionality tool. So I want to grow that space between the stimulus, the impulse, the, ooh, I really want that, and the purchase. And if that happens too closely together, that's an impulsive decision. If I can grow the space, even if that means you are lawyering up and trying to fit this through your purpose, that's fine. Another version, maybe an easier version, is to simply ask, will this add to my happiness, my long-term happiness? And again, just asking the question of yourself is enough to to grow this space. Other questions that I... So basically what it comes down to is anything you can do to grow that space between impulse and purchase. So it could be a financial purpose statement or does this make, it happy, make me happy? It could be, do I have room for this? How will I feel tomorrow? Uh, what if I waited? Or I, I really like this one. Do I really need this? Because you can ask this several times. You can say, do I really need this? Or do I really need this? And do I really need this? And do I really need this? You're asking the same question with one sentence four times. And again, not trying to force a no. You're just trying to make sure I don't want to have buyer's remorse. I don't want to say, oh, now I have to return this because what was I thinking? It's the same idea you might have heard. It has different terms, but if you're online shopping, putting something in your cart or in a list, and waiting for three days or waiting until tomorrow and then coming back to see if you still want it. It's the same idea. You, you want to separate the purchase from the initial excitement. Priority you, speed bumps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that. <laughs> I love that. And if you still want it, Trademark then you know you actually now. want it. <laughs> yes. Um, no, that, and that makes, <clears throat> that makes total total sense. And I, you know, I just, um, I mean, the, the unfortunate thing is that all these conversations don't know people don't always, and especially in America don't have the tools to cope with these mental stresses all the time. And I guess one thing I would ask is, you know, what if these conversations don't go well when we're having, you know, we have, we're feeling kind of down on this stuff after being around people and so forth. What are some ways people can, you know, pick themselves back up or what are the, what are some tools you would recommend people focus on if, you know, things don't go the way we hope. And I think I can back up and say, especially with conversations around the holidays and especially if you add money on top of that, (laughs) it's helpful to Exactly. And if you think about, the potential for conflict or fights or arguments or, or whatever. Uh, this is what's going to happen before, usually, what's going to happen before the next day when you feel down on yourself. But if we can rewind the day before, sure. there's this idea that's called emotional flooding, which is we're just too flooded with emotions to actually think yep. like a grown-up. And so the, the analogy that I like to use is think of an elephant with a rider on top that elephant is the 
survival part of your brain. It's your primitive part of your brain, or the subconscious, you might think of it as. And the rider is the conscious brain, the, the outer shell, the part that makes you feel like a human, the part that makes you think like you. In times of low stress, the rider can control the elephant or, or thinks he's controlling the elephant. And that's it all works out great. If, if we're not emotionally flooded, if everything's going great, all systems are working together. If something spooks the elephant, in other words, what's, what spooks the elephant? One of those or more six needs aren't being met. That's what's going to kick the elephant into survival mode. And if the elephant gets spooked, the rider is going to have no control of the system. The elephant's going to do what the elephant's going to do. Now, sometimes the rider will see what spooked the elephant. Like, oh, I, I saw that mouse or I saw that whatever. Sometimes the rider was looking this one way and what spooked the elephant came up from a different direction. So you don't have any, even any idea why the elephant's going crazy. So the, that analogy is the thinking part of our brain stops working, kind of goes offline, as it were. And the, the elephant part of our brain, the animal part of our brain, is developed at about seven, eight years old. So if we're not using the rider, if we're not, if we don't have the thinking part of our brain hooked up or the, the adult part of our brain hooked up, we are literally acting like children. We're acting like eight-year-olds, but we have grown-up words and we have grown-up strategies. And this is when you'll notice this if you've ever been in an argument with your spouse or your teenage kid or a coworker, where you just I say I can say things. I've heard this a time or <laughs> ten. <laughs> yes. And what happens? In the moment, the elephant is just trying to get out of that situation. It's a short-term focus. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get out of this situation right now. Without any regard, the future planning is the job of the rider. The elephant's job is to get out of this very specific situation. That sometimes means being mean, uh, saying things that you didn't want to say, doing things you didn't want to do. I punched this wall. I got, I lost my temper. And then about 20 or 30 minutes later, you might know what happens. The rider gets control again and says, what did you do? Why did I say that? Why did we do that? Why didn't I say this? So, so it's because we didn't really know what was going on. So that happens both ways. That happens in the other people that we're talking to as well. So the, the trick, if you can, and this is it's like everything in life, it's going to sound simple, but it's not so easy. It takes practice. Mm -hmm. But if you notice your emotions getting, say, above a six, try to find some way to take a time out. I'm sorry I have to go collect myself, or this is getting a little too strong for me, or just leave. <laughs> but don't, if you keep going and the emotions get too high, then you're going to be flooded. And then you're not going to be acting like yourself. Similarly, if you notice somebody else and you're doing more of a guess, some guesswork here. But if it seems like the person you're talking to is getting up to about a five or a six on the emotion scale, you can excuse yourself as well. And it's best to keep I statements. Don't say you are getting too angry. So I'm going to leave. It's best to say, I need to take a break because ac accusations are going to jump. They're going to make that emotion level spike. And it was already climbing up. So try to use I statements instead of you statements. Mm -hmm. Now, that's how you might, again, with practice, you can slow down and, and prevent emotional flooding, re retain the control of the elephant. Now, we all make mistakes. We're all humans. So what happens, now this is, I think, what you were asking. What happens if there was an uncomfortable conversation? Somebody lost their temper on me, or maybe I lost my temper on somebody, or 
it's not always anger. Maybe there was just other heated emotions going around, sadness and envy and things like that. Tomorrow, I wake up and I say, man, I'm really feeling down. First thing is, that's okay. We are, are humans, and part of the human condition is to feel different emotions. So don't try to hide them. Don't push them away. Don't pretend it's not there. Uh, and so that might mean have a good cry for 15 minutes or something. And if you're I'm stereotyping here, but if you're a man listening to this, you're probably rolling your eyes at me right now. But that's how you can get release those emotions because they're there. And if you try to, to hide it, it's less likely to work. And now back to the stereotypes. Men have been trained, again, broad strokes. This doesn't apply to every single person, but men have learned, in our culture anyways, the only emotion it's okay to experience is anger. Women generally have learned the only ex emotion you can experience is sadness. And because that's what we learned, that's what those schemas are, or scripts, we sometimes are misinterpreting. So maybe I'm actually sad, but I it's coming across as anger because that's the only thing I have practice expressing or maybe i'm a, a woman and i'm angry but i'm it's coming out as sadness because that's the only thing i've had experience or you know practicing so just understand that it's okay to have negative feelings and, and sit with it for a little bit i'm actually a, I'm a mindfulness coach too i don't we don't need to go into the mindfulness aspect of this but <laughs> um but if you do meditate it might be a good time to meditate if you want to. Don't do anything you're not comfortable with, of course. But then once you've gotten past the initial wave of emotion, now mm -hmm. you're back um, online. Because remember, you don't want to get flooded. And this rumination, and oh, why did I say this? Why did I do that? And you're replaying this conversation over and over in your head. But you already know the conversation happened. So that voice in your head that you're talking to, you're, you already know that stuff. So all that's doing is just reminding yourself to be angry or to be sad or to be envious. So uh, I know that sounds esoteric, but you have to consciously remind yourself to be angry. If you just focused on the anger, it will dissipate. You're only angry if you keep reminding yourself, yes, that Uncle Bob was a jerk. And then it goes away and you're, oh, that's stupid Bob. I hate that guy. And then you have to remind yourself again. So if you can break that cycle and just allow yourself to feel whatever you're feeling, anger at Bob in this case, now you're, you've gotten past the emotions. And now when you're not flooded, remember, rider is in control again. Now you can figure out what's the best step going forward, non-emotionally. I can actually say, do I need to ask for an apology? Do I need to apologize? Do I need to separate myself from this person? Do I need to, you know, whatever the, whatever the case might be, you can do that with a clear mind after you've let the emotions run through you. So you don't, most in most cases, you don't want to make decisions when your emotions are up at a six or something like that. You don't want the elephant to decide things like this. You want the, the rider to be in control. Well, I think that's, I mean, that's a great segue into the next episode we're getting to have coming up um, about using your emotions and whether, it, you know, impacts your purchases and so forth so i thank you very much derek as always you're very generous with your time and um just let people know where they can uh follow along with uh, your insights and so forth 
Yeah, so my website is moneyhealthsolutions.com, and that's the home base for everything. You can learn everything about me there. Uh, I have a free weekly newsletter that you can sign up for. I use a lot of pictures to try to cut through <laughs> complexity and often just quick, maybe not so quick, but tips using personal stories to help help you think about things a little bit differently. But I also have other things if you want to look around. There's a lot of resources on that website, moneyhealthsolutions.com. Awesome. Appearances do not constitute endorsement of flagship wealth management group, LPL Financial, the Pinnacle Financial Group, or any other entity discussed in this program. Securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPIC. Investment advice offered through the Pinnacle Financial Group, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from LPL Financial. The opinions voiced are for general information only. They're not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax or legal advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific situation with a qualified tax or legal advisor. Derek Hagan and Money Health Solutions are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial, Flagship Wealth Management, or the Pinnacle Financial Group.